You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Domecast, the news and observer and insiders weekly look, uh, dive into uh, all that is state politics and government in North Carolina. I'm Patrick Gannon, filling in for Andy Curlis as your host this week. We have a great show lined up. Uh, We have Joe Neff uh, sitting next to me from the News and Observer who broke the story that everybody's talking about this week, uh, which is uh, Governor Pat McCrory's um, involvement with uh, a prison contract um, and a meeting that took place in Charlotte about that. After that, in our second segment, we'll have News and Observer reporters Colin Campbell and Craig Jarvis We'll be here to talk about other things making news this week. Colin will talk about the uh, announcement that Senator Bob Rucho will no longer serve in the Senate after next year. He's not going to run for re-election. And Craig Jarvis will be here to talk about another ethics issue involving the uh, governor, Pat McCrory. And then finally, of course, we'll end with headliners of the week. Um, so we're here with Joe uh, Neff from the News and Observer, who had a busy week last week, um, broke the story, as I said about uh, the governor and uh, prison contract um, that hopefully by now most of our listeners have read and probably seen a million tweets about. Uh, So, Joe, how did this story come about? Like most good stories, uh, a source called me and gave me a tip, and that set me rolling on this. How long ago was that? It was a a while back. Okay. And apparently it was a good tip? It was a good tip, um, and the story, as when it, as is ultimately published, was based entirely on records uh, from the McCrory administration, from the Department of Public Safety and the State Budget Office, and the spine of the story is based on on the record those records plus on the record interviews with Governor McCrory, his State Budget Director uh, Lee Roberts, and Secretary. Secretary of Public Safety, Frank Perry. All right. So bring us up to speed for those of us who haven't read, um, you know, every word of your story and follow-up story. Uh, What happened? What's the issue? Well, it goes to Graham Keith Sr. is a retired banker, had a very successful banking career in Charlotte and around the Southeast. And then after retirement, started up a, a very successful commercial development company. He's the Keith Corporation is one of the biggest commercial developers in Charlotte. So he is a, a prominent businessman and a civic figure there. He has been close to Billy Graham uh, for all of his career. In fact, at one point, Billy Graham called Graham Keith his uh, Billy Graham's personal banker. Uh, Graham Keith sits on various boards having to do with Billy Graham and the Billy Graham Library and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, etc., one of a small business offshoot that Graham Keith started back in the mid-90s involved private prison maintenance. And over the years, he got a, in the Hunt administration, he got a small pilot project with one prison in the prison system providing maintenance, and it expired. And then in the Easley administration, he got another pilot project expanding it to three prisons. And that was renewed during the Purdue administration, and now during the McCrory administration, it was uh, about to come to a halt. Why is that? It's been an issue that's been knocked around the legislature a bit, 
And in May of 2014, the prison system sent a report to the legislature that the General Assembly had asked for. And this report was not good news for the Keith Corporation. It said, A, this private contract is not getting us any savings, no significant savings, and B, and more importantly, and most importantly, the risk and security issues of private contractors inside the perimeter, inside close security prisons, was just too much. You couldn't quantify that in dollars and cents, but you add that risk plus no savings, and the prison system said, you know, we should cut this off. Graham Keith was obviously displeased with that, and he went to the governor and requested a meeting. And so that is the meeting that was the subject of the story. It took place October 28, 2014, in the governor's office in Charlotte. Present were Graham Keith Sr., his son, Greg Keith, who's also a partner in this private prison maintenance business, and several, several of their employees. There are four employees from the prison system, including Secretary of Public Safety Frank Perry. And the governor is at the meeting. The governor op- opens the meeting according to a memo from the prison system written shortly after this meeting that kind of encapsulated the highlights of the meeting. After the governor made introductory remarks around this conference table at a meeting of nine people, Graham Keith started off by saying, I've been in this private prison business, private prison maintenance business, for more than 10 years, and during that time I have given a lot of political contributions, and now it's time that I get something in return. He also talked about uh, the fact that he had been working the legislature to make the rules on expanding the business more favorable to him. the, the, The decision to expand the business now lay in the hands of Secretary of Public Safety Frank Perry. And he ended the meeting with a, or ended his presentation, I should say, with a PowerPoint in which he proposed expanding the private maintenance of prisons from the three prisons in this pilot project to all 57 state prisons, which would be a huge increase in business for his company. My understanding, and this all this is confirmed by uh, Secretary Frank Perry, is that Commissioner of Prisons, David Geis, uh, was very concerned about this. A, he was uncomfortable with all this talk of political contributions, and B, they were talking about expansion of these contracts, would re- which would require that these contracts be bid. There would have to be a request for proposal. And the fact that the governor and state officials and the Keith Corporation are in a room discussing this, he thought would um, prevent would prevent the Keith Corporation from bidding on it. There's a conflict of interest which is looming in that room. Uh the meeting ended shortly afterwards, and uh, after the meeting, the governor called his budget director, Lee Roberts. And Lee Roberts said, the governor said, hey, these two parties, the prison system and the Keith Corporation, are talking past each other. Why don't you take a look at the numbers and see who's right on this? So we move forward into December, And Lee Roberts at the state budget office meets with Graham Keith and several people at the Keith Corporation. There's no one from the Department of Public Safety in that meeting. 
uh, and that was a request made by Greg Keith, a business partner with his father, Graham Keith. And at that meeting, Lee Roberts assured the Keith Corporation that the contract, contracts which were going to expire at the end of the year, this is December 17th, this meeting, the contracts were to expire in two weeks, Roberts assured the Keith Corporation that we will renew it. And it moves up to the last couple days of the year where the prison system hadn't done anything on it. It requires the signature and approval of Secretary Frank Perry. And based on texts and emails and such, this is what happened. Thomas Stith who is chief of staff to McCrory, and Lee Roberts, the budget director, basically pushed Frank Perry to approve and sign that contract extension. Perry said, I thought the law had, that we had to go to the government ops committee and get it approved. Lee Roberts says, no, that's an erroneous legal opinion. Frank Perry said, we are ready to stand up and take over this, that we can move, um, uh, state employees into these jobs and take over the maintenance close of business on December 31st. Lee Roberts says, we believe that the uh, Keith Corporation is a better deal and saves taxpayers money, and he and pa Thomas Stith were going ahead with the contract. And early in the morning of December 31st, um, just after midnight, less than 24 hours left in this contract, Secretary Frank Perry sends Lee Roberts a text which starts out, very bad decision. Sorry, but this is going to soil our gov. And I asked Frank Perry about that. What did you mean soil our gov? And he said it's the, the, all the talk of political contributions, that political contributions should get the Keith Corporation public dollars in return. That was disturbing to him. And he said that he had that conversation with Mr. Keith on other occasions, in a, another meeting, and then in a phone call. And he followed marching orders and renewed the contract, but he was clearly um, not pleased with that. Okay. Um, has anybody asked this? Just this question keeps popping in, into my head as I read your stories. And, and now again, has anybody asked the governor point blank why he would undermine or question the people that he appointed to the Pu Department of Public Safety in terms of? their opinions on what should be done with this contract? He said that he wanted, he was, he intervened in this because he had two parties that were uh, at loggerheads and he wanted to sort it out and see, you know, what was the truth? Who was saving money? He didn't understand, so he hands it over to the budget director, is what he said. Um, in our short interview uh, with Governor McCrory last week, uh, he said that he was trying to innovate and save the the taxpayer money. That was his his concern. Okay. What what was the governor's response after the sh after uh, the story showed up in the Charlotte Observer and the News and Observer? What's been the governor's response since then? Well, let me back up first to tell you uh, to remind your, our listeners of what the go the governor said about what happened at this meeting. He does not deny or dispute that Graham Keith stood up and said his political contributions uh, deserved public business. He said 
He didn't hear him say that. He did. Governor said, I did not hear Graham Keith say that. He was probably involved in a side conversation at that moment. Um, since the story ran, the governor has characterized it as a, you know, a smear, a partisan hack job, a whatever, just attacking the story, but not addressing any of the facts of the story. Uh, any of his uh, criticisms uh, involved headlines and photo cropping. We stand by those, you know, regular day-to-day decisions of journalism. But they brought no—this is a very long story—filled with facts. It was fairly dense, and they have made no complaint about anything factually wrong in the story. Remind our readers, you also broke the Dana Cope story um, a few months back. Uh, Dana Cope, the former uh, scenic uh, head who is now uh, facing charges for, um, uh, I guess, taking money that otherwise belonged to scenic members and using it for uh, personal uh, gain. What was the original response from the scenic people when that first story came out? Uh, same thing. They just attacked the story saying it's wrong, it's not true. Um, and, you know, now Dana Cope's been charged with two very serious felonies, and it's likely that we're going to see him plead guilty to those in the near future. And I would like to point out one thing um, as far as, uh, in defense of the News and Observer, uh, Graham Keith said that the story is the work of foes of. Uh, privatization of, of prison functions. And I have to say that Dana Cope, who we covered very aggressively, was the number one foe of prison privatization in the state. So uh, I say we're going, you know, we're reporting on both both sides equally. Uh, so what's next with this this story about prison contracts? Where, where do you see this heading in it, and what are you working on in terms of follow-ups? Well, we've got a number of records requests in um, that hopefully will bear fruit. I believe that the General Assembly's Government Operations uh, uh, Committee will probably put this on their agenda at some point. We are trying to get to the legislative leaders, uh, Senator Phil Berger and Representative Tim Moore, at some point and talk to them about uh, uh, all the repercussions and, and, and issues here. Uh, we're just going to keep pursuing it. That's Joe Neff, a uh, reporter for the News and Observer, who broke the story this week on uh, the prison contracts issue and Governor Pat McCrory. Joe, thanks a lot uh, for being with us today. Sure. Good to be here. And we'll be right back with uh, Colin Campbell and Craig Jarvis, the News and Observer, right after this. In 2016, when you go to the polls, bring your passion and be sure to bring a photo ID. You see, this election you'll be asked to show an acceptable photo ID at the polls. If you don't have an ID or if you're unable to obtain one, there are still options for voting. There are lots of acceptable IDs. But only one you. This election, be seen, be heard. For information on exceptions or for help getting a free ID, visit voterid.nc.gov or call 866-522-4723. And we're back here on the Domecast. I'm Pat Gannon from the Insider, filling in for Andy Curlis uh, this week, although probably not very admirably. Uh, you just heard from Joe Neff talk about 
the story about Governor Pat McCrory and the, and the prison contracts issue. Uh, here with Craig Jarvis now, the News and Observer, who broke another story uh, related to ethics and the governor this week. But this one ended a lot. Well, we don't know how the prison contract story is going to end yet, but this one ended favorably, I would say, uh, for, for the governor. Craig, tell us, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, after a week of uh, bad news on the prison maintenance contract front, the governor jumped on a uh, decision that the State Ethics Commission made recently and uh, publicized the fact that it had dismissed complaints that were brought against him by a liberal advocacy group, Progress NC Action. Uh, this had to do with some reporting that we had done, Associated Press had done, and others had looked into involving how the governor had filled out his state economic interest forms. And there were uh, questions raised about uh, did he fully disclose uh, uh, his stock holdings with Duke Energy, uh, what he got from Tree.com when he was on the board of directors there, and exactly what his role was with his brother's company, which was a consulting firm down in Charlotte. Um, there were a lot of, there were mistakes. They had to file revised forms. His lawyer, Bob Stevens, kind of uh, took the blame for it all, said he just made mistakes and they had to, you know, uh, they had to do some redos. And uh, individually, they, these weren't big mistakes. They were like little mistakes. But Progress NC was trying to say uh, there's a pattern of omissions, a pattern of discrepancies. It's just not believable. In the support of that, they submitted a couple of complaints with like nearly 600 pages worth of documentation. Uh, so the Ethics Commission, which is pretty much does all its work in private, we don't know uh, what they do for the most part. Uh, but but because the governor uh, had the ability to release uh, this information because he was the one that was the target of it, uh, a little bit of it came out, and we we simply know that the commission got the re the complaints earlier this year. They took an initial look at it and thought there's enough here to take a, a really good look at. It. So they devoted some staff time over the next few months and looked into it all, and then uh, fairly recently decided determined that uh, the, the the complaints were baseless. And that, that was a vote from the Ethics Commission, correct? That was a vote from a panel of the commission, I believe, that actually heard kind of the evidence and took a look at it. And I, I, I believe that's how it works. It was a smaller subset of the commission. Uh, do we know whether there was dissent or was this yeah, unanimous or is that one that, of those things yeah. that we don't know? We do not and know. And we'll never know. We don't, and we'll probably never know. Uh, the governor could release additional documentation. He had to submit written uh, answers to some of the issues that they had. He could make that public. Um, uh, Progress NC is calling on him to do that. And the governor's office is say, well, how about you disclose your donors, then we'll think about who's being transparent. It probably goes without saying that if Progress enters if Progress Center, Progress NC wants the governor to do something, he probably won't. I think that's a safe bet. And it, the whole thing is, uh, you know, there were some legitimate issues here. Somebody needed to look at it, but it's it's very political. It's unavoidably political. Thanks, Craig. And uh, sitting on the other side of me is Colin Campbell from the News and Observer, who um, I guess was here today when the news <laughs> broke that, uh, that Senator Bob Rucho, a, a very... Um, What's the right word? He's polarizing, kind of polarizing, <laughs> lightning rod, divisive um, guy uh, who's been in the Senate for a long time. Uh, announced this morning there had been rumors for a long time that he he may not run again in 2016, but he's uh, chosen not to do that. And there's been a lot of reaction on Twitter and elsewhere about it. You know, there's a lot of people on on the left side of things who don't agree with a lot of what he's done. But Colin, if you could uh, tell me uh, kind of 
what are the major issues that Senator Rucho has been involved in in the, in the past few years since Republicans took control? Well, I think uh, Rucho's uh, biggest uh, sort of pet project, as it were, is the the whole tax shift we've seen in the state over the last few years. All the the income and uh, tax cuts, both on the personal side and the corporate side, uh, he's been sort of the driving force behind it. And he really believes strongly that uh, we need to be, as a state, moving away from uh, a reliance on income taxes for revenue and more towards uh, sales taxes on services uh, and goods and that sort of thing, that he believes that's a better system of taxation. And he's uh, moved uh, bit by bit towards that over the course of the years. He still believes there's more to be done in that regard and, and hopes that the legislature will, will do so in the f- next few years. Of course, that has uh, been a lot of what's made him a lightning rod for particularly those on the left who uh, really feel like uh, expanding the sales taxes while cutting income taxes is disproportionately hurting uh, the state's poor. Uh, so he's gotten a lot of flack for that. Uh, he also was one of the uh, chief architects of the uh, redistricting uh, proposal that the Republicans put together shortly after the 2010 census, uh, after they took power. And uh, that's been taken to court uh, under allegations that it's uh, gerrymandering that uh, does not legally uh, change the, the structure of, of the districts around the state and all the uh, congressional and, and general assembly races. But what is hard not to argue is that uh, the result of, of the redistricting plan he put together has uh, really allowed Republicans to help consolidate their power and, and continue to have the majority in the legislature uh, probably through this decade. Yeah, and he um, he's also been very involved in uh, energy policy issues, the fracking issue, uh, other elections related uh, issues such as the, the voter ID, he was, or the voter ID legislation, which is still, um, I guess, in, pending in the courts. Um, so he's been kind of a uh, a front man in terms of for, for Senator Berger in terms of a lot of these major uh, policy issues and changes and shifts that have gone on since Republicans took control. Um, what's been the what's been the response that you've seen from from the other side? I was very polarized about his um, announcement. We saw, I think it was the editorial page director of the um, Charlotte Observer, who wrote uh, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead on Twitter, which uh, got a lot of uh, flack from people who said that was a little bit uh, classless. Um, but a lot of the, the folks on the left really happy to see Rucho go. Of course, his, uh, his district is fairly Republican-leaning, so the odds that that seat is going to flip over in the Senate are, are pretty slim, uh, in my mind, on the side of the folks that are, are fans of Rucho, including uh, most notably uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger. Uh, lots of praise for his uh, his different speeches and uh, sort of great greatest hits reel uh, over his, his years in the legislature. Uh, Senator Phil Berger put out a press release that uh, referenced uh, how they went out to dinner the first uh, night that uh, Rucho was in office, and it's still debatable who picked up the tab. Apparently they were roommates for a while uh, when they were in Raleigh, which uh, had to be a, an interesting uh, dinner table conversation, but uh, certainly a, a lot of appreciation from him uh, from folks in, uh, in Senate leadership. And uh, we'll miss him in the press because he was so accessible. I mean, this is a guy who uh, never shied away from uh, trying to, to convince you that, that his argument was right and uh, that if he just talked to you a little bit more about it and explained it better to you, he could convince you that, you know, his proposal on taxation or whatever was, was the right way to go. And it was fun to see him spar with uh, particularly like the News and Observer editorial board who are a little bit more on the liberal side going back and forth for an hour with, with Rucho. In fact, in this very room that we record our podcast, and uh, and just this spirited debate that you know you you get with Rucho, but you don't necessarily always get with legislators who would rather just not have to defend their positions all day long. Yeah, he's certainly a character, and he's certainly the first one of the first people in the Senate to stand up when he heard Democrats talking about something 
Republic Republicans were doing um, to, to talk about what Democrats did when they were in charge and, and what Republicans are doing now. He was definitely a defender of a strong defender for what the Republicans are doing in Raleigh these days. Um, so we're going to leave it. Thanks, Colin. We're going to leave. Uh, actually, we're going to leave this segment um, with a little bit of flavor of Senator Rucho um, that anybody who's listened to Senate debates will will understand. Here's Senator Rucho. And I wish I brought my uh, my expenditure book, which is about nine billion dollars in uh, exemptions, deductions, all of these special tax loopholes that are there that we're trying to clean up. The rest of us, the General Assembly, worked very hard in taking out some of them the last time, and we will hopefully work in that same direction. Uh, that'll give us the resources to put the money back in the pockets of the people and not in the government. And we're back on the Domecast. Uh, this is our weekly, uh, very popular segment we call Headliners of the Week, um, where, I, where we ask uh, News and Observer and Insider journalists who they thought uh, should be, or who they think should be Headliner of the Week. And then I'll, I'll choose uh, based on the 45-second, uh, I guess, explanations by uh, these folks. We have, first of all, uh, Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, who's been, had a very busy week. Who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to go the uh, inanimate object route this time around and go with wine growlers, which are a thing that I did not know existed until uh, a few weeks ago uh, when I learned that there was a new alcohol law that had gone into effect uh, at the beginning of October, uh, mostly targeted at distilleries to allow them to be able to sell bottles to folks who take tours there uh, without having to go to an ABC store. But they also had a, a law change that allowed uh, these glass jugs called growlers to be used to fill up uh, wine from a, a keg, which apparently wine is available in a keg, much like beer. Uh, and that's uh, been touted as a way to uh, get wine drinkers the opportunity to have fresher wine, to have uh, cheaper wine, because you're not paying for the bottling process and the labels and all of that. And uh, a couple of stores in Raleigh have already picked that up. So uh, that's, that's my pick this week. So alcohol containers, we, we've had uh, plenty of, we've had other inanimate Yeah, objects, sharks and ceremonial pins, I think. Oh, that's true, yeah. I did uh, ceremonial, ceremonial pins a, co- pins. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Have, have any of them ever won? I think I won for ceremonial pins the other week. So, you know, I'm sticking with the, uh, what got me a win two or three weeks ago is going the inanimate route. Good luck with that. Uh, Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer, who is your headliner of the week? I'm sticking with animate people. Um, this is pretty insidery, but I'm going to go with Lori Dollar, who uh, a couple weeks ago lost her job basically at the Department of Public Safety because of some intricate uh, uh, backroom uh, movement. The budget at the last minute robbed DPS Secretary Frank Perry of his uh, number two guy. So he was offended by that. He thought maybe Lori Dollar, whose husband is the chief budget writer for the House, uh, maybe had something to do with it. So he put her out of a job and uh, uh, she landed on her feet. She's now working for the administrative office of the courts as a deputy director. She's been around state government. She knows how to land on her feet. She's been a uh, deputy state auditor, commissioner with the industrial commission, general counsel for the department of corrections, an attorney with the department of human resources. So it's not surprising that she uh, landed on her feet and uh, and knows how to play state government. So I'm, I'm going to go with her. I know we've had Lori Dollar's husband, Nelson Dollar, as a as a nominee for Headliner of the Week. I don't remember if he won at any point. He probably did. Now we have his wife, Lori Dollar. 
as a nominee. So we have um, Wine Growlers, we have Lori Dollar, now we're going to have Joe Neff uh, from the News and Observer. Who is your headliner of the week? I'm going to have to give it to Frank Perry, the Secretary of Public Safety. This is a guy who committed in text messages uh, some unfavorable things about his boss. One text that we got was uh, that in the story that started off the Domecast this week was that the governor was too close to the Keith Corporation. In another text at, at, the, uh, at the end of last year, he wrote that, um, you know, this is very bad decision. This will soil our gov. So here you have a cabinet official um, leaving a paper trail uh, or a digital trail, I should say, and then uh, having the guts to own up to it when questioned by a reporter. And uh, I think that that's rather unusual. So I'd give it to Frank Perry, and I think it's all of that probably betrays his former career as a longtime FBI supervisor and agent. So Joe Neff takes Frank Perry, who's kind of a lead character in the uh, the story this week about uh, Governor McCrory and, and the Keith uh, Corp or Keith Company uh, prison contracts. Um, I'm going to have to go with that one, uh, Joe being our special guest. Uh, but that's definitely the story of the week that, that most people are talking about. I guess you could kind of throw Bob Rucho in there, uh, given his announcement today he won't run again and all the Twitter uh, craziness that happened as a result of that today. But we're going to go with Frank Perry, and um, we'll head out with that. Frank Perry is your headliner of the week, and we will see you soon. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 